Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 88 of the Book Cougars, two middle-aged women on the hunt for a good read. I'm Emily. And I'm Chris. And we are speaking to you through our new microphones. It's very exciting. Yeah, we feel very professional all of a sudden with these microphones. We do. And um, we're learning how to get up close and personal with them. Yes. We both have our own, which is different for all of these years. And it is years now. Right. We've been talking into one microphone together. Right. We had our snowball yeah. microphone. Blue ball? Snowball? Well, it was a blue ball, snowball. <laughs> Something like that. We don't know. But, <laughs> but um, now we, yeah, now we yeah. have individual mics that will hopefully help us sound even better and be able to edit things a little bit more precisely and whatnot. Right. And thank you to Cougar Chris. She did all of the research and got us all up and running with this. And she does the editing of the podcast. So she's had, it's been a learning curve. Yeah, it has been. We don't outsource anything. We do everything ourselves from recording to editing to social media. We are a, a two woman team here. Yes. And uh, I'm grateful for the work that she does because I don't know how to do it. <laughs> <laughs> Before we get started, I did just want to do a shout out to Saeed Jones. He just won the Kirkus Prize for his memoir, How We Fight for Our Lives, which I talked about on episode 82. I talked about it before it was available. It is now available. I highly recommend this memoir. It will gut you. It's very sad. I was definitely sobbing at the end of it. But it's a beautiful, beautifully written and just very heartfelt memoir. So if you're a memoir reader, I highly recommend you put it on your list. And I'm thrilled for him that he's getting the recognition that I think it deserves. Yeah, that's fantastic. We did see him on two occasions in the past at events, uh, both with Roxanne Gay, actually. Um, and we'd been hearing about the memoir coming out and, and heard a little bit about his writing process with it. So I'm looking forward to reading it. I do have a copy and we'll be diving into it probably early next year, I think. Oh, good. I'm so glad you're going to read it. So what are you currently reading? I am currently reading Ninth House by Lee Bardugo. That's the one we've talked about that one in the past. Yeah. And it, it was a big one that was advertised a lot at um, Book Expo. They had huge banners for it. Now, this is her first adult novel. She's a really hot YA writer. And from what I understand that uh, this book, it's, it's for older YA people, but not for younger YA readers because it is adult themed. Okay. Um, it's set in New Haven at... Let me see if I can say this correctly. Yale. <laughs> I was told this uh, this weekend by our friend Kate, who is a, a an alumni uh, alumnus alumna alumna alumna, yes. that I have been mispronouncing it all these years. I've been saying Yale, Yale. She's like it's not two syllables. <laughs> I think it's adorable, and I've never corrected you because I think the way we pronounce things is. Part of what gives us personality. Oh, is that what that is? <laughs> personality. Great. So I just have to get used to saying Yale. 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 Yeah. Not Yale. I don't think you were mispronouncing it. I think you were pronouncing it with your Chicago accent. Is that accent. what that is? Yeah. All right. Yeah. All right. Like Loyola. Exactly. Always, <laughs> which is uh, my alma mater. Yeah. So I'm, I just started it last night before bed. I thought, is this really stupid of me to be starting this thriller before bed? Um, 
It wasn't stupid. I got into it a bit and I look forward to diving into it more this week. Oh, that's great. I'm so glad that you're escaping into that one. I know you were really excited to get started with it. Yeah, and it's a good one, I think, for the holiday season because it is, it is, it has some horror elements, supernatural elements, and a good thriller, mystery, campus novel. I think it hits a lot of different buttons for people. Excellent. I'm currently reading Bird by Bird by Anne Lamott. Awesome. Yeah, this is one that I have said to Chris over and over that I'm interested in reading, and she had a copy on her shelf. Um, when we had John Valerie on last time, or Valerie. Yes. So, okay, another thing. Like, people, you need to correct me when I mispronounce things. I found out last week, after five years of friendship with John, our mystery man, I've been saying Valerie. It's actually Valerie. Yeah. So there you go. Yeah, I've been mispronouncing it because I was introduced to him as John Valerie and he didn't correct me or whoever. Well, it was probably you who did the introduction. Yeah. I was like, so. thanks, John. He's like, well, you know, I answer to anything. So it's no big deal. <laughs> this is why I think we should just not use any names. You know my theory on that. That guy but... with the beard, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah him. <laughs> um, although that's even getting dangerous these days. I'm not sure pronouns are changing too, but... Anyway, we won't go there. Um, so there is a new edition because this is now celebrating its 25th anniversary. Crazy. Yeah. And it does have a really cool cover, but I have a really lovely hardback version that Chris has let me borrow. And it really is a story about the craft of writing. You mm -hmm. know, how do you write character and setting and plot? But Anne Lamott, she also has lots of fiction out there for anyone who's interested she has such ease with words and a way of telling stories that's just really comfortable and fun. And she makes you laugh. She's hilarious. Yeah. So um, I finished, I had finished a book that completely gutted me that I'll talk about next. And I just needed something completely different. And I realized I just had to go nonfiction all the way. Yeah. And saw this on my shelf and pulled it off. And, and I'm really enjoying it. And you know, I don't, I don't um, uh, have a compulsion necessarily to write fiction, but I do find myself writing in my work life quite a bit. I do some writing for the Cougars. And so I feel like even though it's she, I do think that the book is pointed towards fiction writing a little bit. I'm still getting a lot from it and enjoying it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just studying her own craft and how she's writing her nonfiction right. is a great exercise. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, yeah. in that book, Bird by Bird, it's one of the most recommended books for writers. Um, her book and Stephen King's book on writing are probably two of the most more recent books by writers on writing that are recommended that right. are very accessible because they are about writing, but they're also memoir-ish. Mm -hmm. So you get a great glimpse of the person's life as a writer as well as their advice. Right. And I have to say, as a reader, you know, I have so much admiration for writers and to hear someone who's so renowned. And of course, she wrote this 25 years ago, but talk about how difficult it is to write. Yeah. You know, it really just gives me even more admiration for these folks who sit in chairs by themselves <laughs> and create these stories that we get lost in. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I had the opportunity to meet her Many moons ago, there was a literary fest that never quite got off the ground. It was the Midwest Literary Fest, and it was held in Aurora, Illinois. And I think they, they only did it like two or three years, but it was fantastic. They closed 
uh, one of the main thoroughfares of the city and they had tents. I worked for Borders at the time, so we had a big tent and we're selling books there and we sponsored some of the author events uh, and they had great author events and she was one of the mainline authors that came, I think it was the first year that they did it because um, there's also a college right there. So they used their auditorium and whatnot and she was a great author to see in person too because she told some some great stories and had some great advice and she's just really a down-to-earth kind of person yeah yeah I'd love to meet her someday I should look her up I mean yeah. I know she just was on book tour for a book that she did but maybe she'll come back out when it's in paperback or something that'd so. be cool yeah let's yeah. she's a writer to keep on our, our eye on for yes. events right for sure So what did you just read? Well, I just read a couple Willa Cather things. Um, we had Willa Cather Book Club last week for the first time at the Wood Memorial Library Museum in South Windsor, Connecticut. We used to meet at the book club bookstore um, and they closed. But we are continuing to partner with Cindy, who's the owner, who has rebranded her business to be book club on the go. So uh, the Willa Cather Book Club is sponsored by her and held at the Wood Library. It was a fantastic setting for a book club. And I, if you're in the area, I encourage everybody to, to stop by and check out the space. It's fantastic. They have a, a great um, bird room, uh, Native American arrowheads, this huge collection that somebody in the area uncovered. And then in the back of the library, they have a Native American village that is being kind of constructed at this time mm. with wigwams that are under construction like bark wigwams that was really cool I took a walk back there do you know when it's supposed to be done I don't know I think mm. it's kind of like a work in progress okay. I think they have different things going on they they did have a a garden this summer they're working on a huge tree canoe where they're burning out oh, wow. the, the, you know you can see that they are doing it in, in steps, you mm -hmm. know, to, to burn out that inside and then chisel it out and everything like the Native Americans did uh, traditionally. Hmm. So the gentleman caller has quite a fascination with Native American culture, particularly in Connecticut. So yeah. it'd be very fun to take him there. It would be. It's a, it's a great place to check out. Um, so we had we had a smaller group than usual because we had date change because of bad weather. Um, but we still, I think there were six of us, and we discussed The Professor's House, which is uh, Cather's 1925 novel. And I've read it a couple times now, and it was probably maybe 10 years since I read it. Not really sure. I loved it again. Um, and it struck me differently this time because The Professor, who is kind of, in some ways, you, you have this feeling that he's like old, you know, because he's at, you know, he's at kind of at the pinnacle of his career, but it makes it sound like he's kind of at the drifting down because he is depressed. He is in a hard moment of his life because he's completed his magnum opus. He's it's earned all this money for him. And he and his wife have built this brand new house and he doesn't want to leave his old house because his old house is full of all these memories and it's where his writing studio is. Mm. So he's really going through a depression. And I think the way Cather depicts him going into this depression is really quite brilliant and quite true uh, to how it can feel for some people. And he has two older daughters, one who's married to a writer of jingles and, and things like that, and the other one who's married to an inventor 
slash what would you call them now um, investor mm. and there's this backstory with this young man named town tom outland who was one of the professor's students back in the day who was from out west and he unfortunately dies during world war one he'd been engaged to one of the daughters he worked on this invention that was about uh, an airplane type thing and it was theoretical but then after his death eventually people came looking around about it and so the, that one son-in-law is the one who kind of took things to to get the practical application of it so he's a millionaire now married to the former fiance of tom who's dead so there's a lot of conflict in the family about the professor not wanting to move to this new house the two son-in-laws don't really get along everyone has their own version of this guy tom who is the heart of the book in a lot of ways but he's dead oh interesting yeah so there's there's three parts to this novel and you do get tom's backstory uh, the only other thing I want to say, I realize I'm talking a lot about this novel, but I think it's the construction of it, the structure of it, I should say, is really fascinating. And um, I was reading some Cather's letters and essays, and she, somebody published a book, I, I don't remember the editor, but it's called Willa Cather on Writing. And it just collects some of her essays and some of her letters that talk about her writing. And she wrote a letter to a friend talking about the professor's house and how what inspired her to write this was she had gone to an exhibition of uh, Dutch painters, some of the Dutch masters, and they often had this effect in their paintings of a, of a room painted, but then there's this window in the painting where you can see out into the horizon and see ships and whatnot right. like that. So Cather takes that and has this as like a metaphor going throughout the novel. So you have a window in his studio that is problematic. But at the same time, in blows Tom from out west. So you have the structure and then you have the reality of the narrative. That is his backstory hmm. that comes in like a breath of fresh air fascinating yeah i mean there's so much it's a, such an internal novel for cather but then there's of course this great landscape going on uh descriptions and you're in the landscape it's just gorgeous fantastic nice. novel and cather and her publisher at the time they thought it was going to be a sleeper of a novel they didn't think it was going to cause much of a splash but it did it was oh, a, it did. a really strong seller and it surprised them uh the book i think it had an initial print run of twenty thousand books and it sold for $2. The last time I looked, the first edition with a decent dust jacket was selling for $2,000. Wow. Yeah, so that was The Professor's House by Willa Cather. Highly recommend it. Great. Good. How about you? I read The Gifted School by Bruce Holsinger. This was a oh, book yeah. that our buddy who we just saw, um, Jana, recommended to me. She said she thought I would love it. And actually... Um, well, I should say, so what it's about, it takes place in a fictional town in Colorado, but a very wealthy town. And it's, uh, uh, I think it's, I can't remember how many storylines there are, but there's different character points of view and their families with children in school, elementary age children. And there's a group of women who befriended each other when these young kids were all babies and they've become this you know complement of friends who have followed 
each other through the turmoil of raising children and things that happen. You know, one of the women lost her husband, another got divorced. And so there's this cast of characters and the town decides that they're going to open up a gifted school for kids. Yeah. (laughs) Trouble. And kids have to um, test. There's like an IQ test to get in. So right from the start, there's, cheating that takes place with the test and all this sort of stuff and then once kids make it to the next level they have to submit a portfolio to figure out why they stand out and why they should be accepted into the school and what age are they they're i believe it's going to be they're going into middle school and high school i think that's right it might be that they're middle schoolers actually they might be middle schoolers and they're this is a high school i'm sorry i don't remember that detail i'm just curious yeah but um all hell breaks loose, mostly from, of course, the adults. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I used to coach soccer and I always used to tell people, not the parents of my, you know, soccer players, but other friends, <laughs> that adults always ruined everything. Yeah. You know, the kids just wanted to go out there and play. But the adults, I had one parent one time literally grab me around the neck through a net because it was an indoor soccer <laughs> team and say, make my kid hit the ball. Like, you know, score a goal. I'm like, you know, I might have some talents, but I can't, you know, make your child kick their foot and score a goal. Anyway. Wow. Parents always get in the way, sadly. And so, and you know, inevitably that's what happens in this story, that it creates chaos and families and friendships and with children's lives. And obviously it's somewhat reminiscent to what's happening with the college scandal that's going on in the Mm -hmm. United States right now. For those of you who don't know, there are people, and of course it's the people who are famous that are getting the most press, but there's a complement of people who have wealth, who have essentially paid to get their children into various colleges in the country. Right. And, and there's also the colleges themselves who are implicated as well. I think one school claimed to have a sports team that they didn't have and gave a scholarship to one of the kids for the sports team that doesn't exist. Yeah. And they were the captain of the team or something, you know. (laughs) So this book is very reminiscent of the idea of that in that parents get carried away, you know, and I do believe that they, because this is my personality, have the best of intentions and want what's best for their children. But of course, in the process of that, you can devastate your child's self-esteem and, wreak havoc on their friendships and things like that. So that's what the book's about. It was pure pleasure to read. I mean, it was very easy to read. And there were some funny scenes and some shockingly horrifying (laughs) scenes because of people's behavior. Our friend Deb on social media, she said it was it also um, was reminiscent of the book Big Little Lies. Is that what it's called? Oh, Big Little Liars. No, that's not what it's called. The, The Leanne Moriarty book. Yeah, Big yeah, Little Lies. Big Little Liars. <laughs> She's from Australia, right? That, yeah. Yeah. I thought it was Big Little Liars. I thought I'm it was sure. Big Little Lies. We'll, and it will we'll one or up. the other. Yeah. <laughs> the one that, you know, Reese Witherspoon and Nicole Kidman then produced, and it's a doc, TV it's a TV series, yeah. six part TV series on HBO. I think they're in the second season of. And it is reminiscent of that, which is the same thing of, you know, just, I mean, it's different because I think that was more just parents behaving badly and they were much younger children in that movie. Mm-hmm. But it is the same idea of a group of friends and, you know, raising their children and things like that. So again, it was called The Gifted School by Bruce Holsinger. 
And I wouldn't doubt if it becomes a movie or a television show (laughs) in the future. We'll see. (laughs) Nice. Uh, The other Cather thing I read was a short story for the Willa Cather Short Story Project, which uh, was a Wagner matinee. And that was published in 1904. And I won't say much about it. It's a really, it's one of her shorter short stories. And I, I did really enjoy it. It's about a, an aunt who comes, um, who was originally from the Boston area, who'd been living in Nebraska for the last 30 years of her life as a homesteader and early pioneer and comes back to Boston because one of her uncles died and she's there uh, to, you know, take care of some things regarding the will and she is visiting with her nephew who takes her to a matinee and a lot of things you know you get this picture of her life as a woman pioneer struggling on the nebraska you know frontier it made me think a lot of a a novel called a lantern in her hand by best reader aldrich who's another nebraska writer and uh, that novel is really a really good historical fiction piece on what it was like for women and, and men um, coming to Nebraska during the frontier days and, and settling their land and the, eventually the frontier developing into a state. It's really a neat historical fiction book. Also about a woman who's creative and cultured who yearns to be creative and doesn't have the time. And then what happens? You know, you think, oh, in the future, I'll do it. I'll do that then. But then there's never the time for that. So that's a really good novel. I just wanted to put that out there. And that was from 1928. And Best Reader Aldred, she's no longer really read that much, I don't think. Um, I think in some ways it's, and the novel, I don't think it, it didn't have the reputation of like Little Women. But I think like Little Women, it's one of those books that it's kind of handed down to to girls and families who have read it. Well, I wonder it's particularly out in the, you know, Midwest. Right, exactly. Right? Yeah. 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 So, but really, really a good book. I enjoyed it very much. And and I um I hadn't heard of Best Reader Aldrich. I was out visiting my aunt in Nebraska in Plattsmouth, Plattsmouth, Nebraska, and we went to the Cass County Museum and she knew my aunt knew I was into Willa Cather and she's like, Oh, this uh you might also be interested in, in Best Reader Aldrich. She wrote this book. So my aunt bought me a copy of that book, and I, I still have their, that copy that she got me, which is always nice to have something like that, a memento from somebody. And then, of course, when I was studying Cather, you know, Aldrich would come up occasionally because she was a little bit younger than Cather and was one of the most highly paid writers of her day, actually, hmm. Aldrich. Um, and when she did make some quips about Cather. You know, yeah, that yeah. she might be a Nebraska writer, but she doesn't live in Nebraska anymore and things and like that. she doesn't that. get paid as well as me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. I just made that up. You never know. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. That's true. Well, the other book I read is called American Dirt. Oh. It's by Janine Cummins. This is one of the books that was in the editor's buzz at Book Expo this year. It is not out until January 21st of 2020. It completely devastated me when I read it. I mean, literally, like, couldn't get out of bed devastated. So I just want to put that out there to people. (laughs) Be sure you're ready. Um, I will say before I forget that, you know, I have talked about, and I don't remember what episode it was on. I should have looked that up. The book Tell Me How It Ends, an essay in 40 questions by Valeria Luiselli, which is a nonfiction little tiny book about 
Valeria's experience working with children who are awaiting deportation when they have to answer a 40-question questionnaire. And she went in as, um, why can't I think of the word? As a translator, I'm sorry, to help these children who maybe weren't fluent in English to answer these questions. And it really helps you understand the plight of children who have um, come from South America and Mexico to the United States because they're fleeing something in their own country or looking for family that reside in the United States. And the, the actual trip that they have to go through and the experience they have to go through. And it's a brilliantly written little book that really, by reading that, I feel like helped informed my experience reading American Dirt, which is a work of fiction mm -hmm. that follows a mother and a son as their life is completely unraveled by gang violence. Their entire family is murdered, which happens in the very first couple paragraphs of the book, so that's not a spoiler. And then they have to flee the country right away, and they do it on the train called La Bastia, is the nickname of this train, The Beast. Mm. And it's a train that a lot of um, people journey through all the way down from South America all the way up to you know the Texas border, to try to get to El Norte, otherwise known as the United States. They run into a cast of other characters. It is brilliantly written. It is visceral. I f it was a visceral experience for me to read, and it was incredibly propulsive. I would venture to almost call it a thriller, even though I know that's not the point of the book or how they're probably selling it. And I think it really helped me understand you know, they say that reading helps you build empathy, right? Right. I feel like I'm a pretty empathetic person, but but where sometimes you don't have empathy is in the areas that you don't understand. It doesn't mean you don't, the empathy doesn't exist there, but you don't realize the level of your empathy or how to shape your empathy around certain issues. And I would say reading this book was that experience for me because I didn't, really recognize the number of people who are fleeing their countries not out of not by choice you know and I think that's a misconception in our own country that people just want to come to America to live the American dream in this particular case most of the characters in the book were fleeing because they had to not because they wanted to and they were some of them were not leaving good lives behind some of them were leaving lives that they were very happy with behind, you know. Yeah, they were just devastated by gang violence. Or, right. Yeah. Yeah. That's such an important distinction because I think sometimes the the way immigration is covered in this country, it's it doesn't give you a full picture right. of everybody. And not everybody, but all the different types of circumstances of why people are coming. Right. Right. And the part that, you know, made it impossible for me to get out of bed was the devastation of the story itself, but also just the feeling of it, it took me down a path of, you know, why is there such greed in the country, in the world, not in the country? Why is there greed in the country? Why are people so horrifying to other people? Why do people take advantage of people who are in a position of need, needing help, needing money, needing whatever it is, you know? Yeah. And um, 
and how to pay attention to the issue and and feel like you know feel hopeful it made me feel really hopeless about what the answer is you know yeah which I don't I think there is hope it just I couldn't access it after you know closing the pages of this book but it's definitely making me think about the issue a lot and I'm hopeful to to do some more reading and and figure out maybe a place that I can be of help here you know even if it's just where to donate you know right I really recommend reading both of the books I mentioned and the Valeria Luisella's book, um, Tell Me How It Ends, is available now. American Dirt, as I mentioned, won't be available until January. Wow, it sounds really like it's going to open up a lot of conversation in our country. I hope it does. Yeah. Yeah. We need more conversation. Yeah. And I'm really hoping to see Janine Cummins because I just think it was so brilliantly written. I'd love to hear her speak about why she wrote it and her own experience. I do believe that she's married to a gentleman, I want to say, from Mexico. So I don't know what her personal experience is. Um, but I, I would imagine when she's talking about the book that that might weave into the conversation. Right. So again, American Dirt, Janine Cummins, available January 21st, 2020, which actually isn't that far away. It's so not, <laughs> not at all. <laughs> well, I read one more book, a small, short book. It's called Thoughts in Solitude by Thomas Merton. And Thomas Merton was a Trappist monk. Um, he's one of, he, he, he wrote uh, several books. His best known work is probably uh, The Seven Story Mountain, which was his first memoir about being a young person and why he became a monk in his early years. And it's one of my favorite spiritual uh, autobiographies. I think it's called more of an autobiography than a memoir. I think memoir is more of a, a more recent genre, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think it existed. I mean, I don't even know how many years ago, but I want to say even 15 years ago. Oh, okay. I mean, I think it's more, I, I think that, um, Elizabeth Gilbert's book, Eat, Pray, Love, was kind of a change in Wild by Cheryl Strayed, where they were going on adventures and writing about it. And that kind of changed the whole idea of memoir a little yeah. bit. I could be wrong. Yeah. I'm, I'm not speaking with any, you know. <laughs> we'll have to we'll look into that. We'll yeah. look into that for yeah. the next episode, because I'm kind of curious about that. Yeah. Um, because when we'll talk about in our uh, Biblio adventures, somebody made a comment about the conventions of memoir. Mm -hmm. And that made me think about that. And then thinking about Thomas Merton's Seven Story Mountain, which came out, I believe it was in the 50s. Probably in the 50s at some point. Um, could have even been the 40s. I'm not really sure. I don't have that in front of me, unfortunately. But I finally moved. I know people have asked if I've ever moved. We did finally move into our house that we'd been doing this renovation on for seemingly ever yeah um, but we're finally it in. was forever <laughs> oh my gosh yes <laughs> um so that's been great so I was just kind of wiped out and tired and just wanted something kind of comforting to read at night that I was familiar with so I picked up um thoughts in solitude again because I'm interested in the, the issue of solitude the the whole concept of solitude and what it what it can do uh for you as a human being and Merton approaches the issue of solitude, obviously, as a monk. And it's written primarily, I think, for other monks and other spiritual seekers in the Christian tradition. He talks a lot about God. 
in relation to solitude. And that's one of the, the reasons to pursue solitude is to hear yourself and to hear God. Um, and it's a lot, a lot more things than that too, but I just really enjoyed it. And if you have a bent towards solitude and maybe spiritual concepts and ideas, it might be one to check out. That's really cool. You know, it remind, it's reminiscent to me of when, um, there was a period probably three years ago when I was feeling really lonely. Mm -hmm. And I remember you and I went out somewhere and I was talking about it to you and talking about how much time I spend alone because, you know, it's weird to have raised children and then all of a sudden they're adults and disappeared, mm -hmm. you know, and you're, you, you had these times in your life where you just craved alone time, right? Yeah. And then all of a sudden now I'm like, wow, I have as about as much alone time as I can tolerate, yeah. you know? And I remember you turned to me and you said, you know, this might just be a period in your life where you just need to be alone and you'll figure it out. And now I look at my life and it's so different and so full. You know, I have this man in my life that's now been a couple of years which is shocking <laughs> but and you know the cougars are on the prowl all the time right. we're busy you know and I just it, it was such a heartwarming thing you said to me and I think understanding solitude to read about that must be really heartwarming and to understand you know that it's not something to be afraid of right yeah you can learn from it absolutely and a lot of my research is about the issue of loneliness and isolation and solitude, which I see as three really distinct things. And I think there's a lot of loneliness in the world, especially in Western culture, especially in America. A lot of mm -hmm. people, a lot of studies have shown that people in America, Americans feel lonely a lot of the time. And I think there's, it's such a gift to be able to be alone and to experience the joy of solitude, of being with yourself, versus that isolation of feeling trapped and alone and loneliness. Right. Um, so I'm I'm always drawn to books about the subject. Yeah. And I did. I I thought. Um. I don't know that much about Thomas Merton, beyond his, you know, standard bio. So I did a little googling. And I found out that he died in his 50s, but they think he might have been murdered. Ooh. Yeah, possibly by the CIA. Now, this is gossipy, and I have no evidence other than Wikipedia and a couple footnotes from Wikipedia. <laughs> um, but he was in Thailand when he died. He supposedly got out of the shower and tripped over a fan that was plugged in and was electrocuted. Mm. And he was found just wearing his shorts and electrocuted. But I guess a couple of people have raised the idea that he may have been murdered because he was very uh, much into social justice. And, you know, this is around the time when a lot of people were being assassinated who were into social justice, like, you know, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Right. So the, he was seen as someone who was threatening. To yeah, the possibly. Thomas Merton, cool guy. And I, I, I'm now I'm really curious to learn more about his yeah. the, the other part of his life the later years of his life yeah well report back to us please i shall i also read in pieces by sally field talk about memoir yes this was not a celebrity autobiography or biography 
We're going to talk about it in more depth in our next segment, Biblio yes. Adventures. But I just want to say that I loved it and I was surprised. I started it on the train on Saturday as we were heading to this event where we knew we were going to see her. And I read it the rest of the weekend because mm-hmm. I found it very compelling and interesting and much more, um, I don't know how to say this without sounding offensive, but robust than I expected it to be, right. I guess. Yeah. You know, it mm-hmm. was not celebrity-ish at all. It wasn't name droppy. It was really covered a period of time of her life and really talked about her children and her mother and her relationship with her family and um, and her career and starting out and the struggles in her career. But it wasn't, you know, I got to work with Burt Reynolds and I got to work with Robin Williams. You know, she didn't right. just go through a list of a yeah. cast of characters right. or anything yeah. like that. Well, it was funny. So Emily started on page one and I flipped <laughs> to kind of the middle where she started talking about Burt Reynolds. Right. <laughs> when we were on the train. Chris wanted to cut to the chase. <laughs> I, I, I was a huge Burt Reynolds fan when I was a kid. I thought he was just so yummy. Mm. Um, and But, you know, I've heard stories about Burt over the years and Sally confirmed a lot of things in her yes in her book for sure yeah I was reading it yesterday and Jim was sitting on the couch and I said I'm reading about the chapter with Burt Reynolds and I I keep trying to come up with the song from Smokey and the Bandit remember that song you don't remember it I'm trying to because they were like breaker breaker one nine is part of the song is it the convoy because you got a great big convoy trucking through the night damn Chris I should have called you (laughs) (laughs) I meant to get on Spotify and look for it, and I just totally forgot. But yes, that was it. That's it. Yeah, okay. That's like one of the soundtracks to my childhood. I just remember going to those movies. You know, I'm the youngest of four, and I remember frequently being at movies and thinking to myself, like, I think I'm too young to be watching this movie. Yeah. So I I think that was one of those. (laughs) My sister is five years older than, than me, and... Yeah, I saw some movies too. I probably shouldn't have seen yeah, when I saw that. I definitely yeah. did. So, <laughs> and Burt Reynolds was a uh, centerfold in mm-hmm. Playgirl magazine. Yep. Yeah, you can Google that if you're interested. Yes, it's out sure there. Was. Is that why you thought he was yummy? Well, I don't know. I think I was a little bit too young for all of that kind of stuff. But I did like Grizzly Adams, <laughs> and Burt Reynolds is really hairy too. Yes, they so both are. I'm Grizzly a lesbian Adam. who has a thing for hairy men, apparently. <laughs> hey, we all have our types. <laughs> Grizzly Adams. Oh, that's another that blast a great from show. the past. I yeah. love that show. I did too. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So anyway, it was you know kind of a walk down memory lane to read her memoir. Um, I mean, she is in her early seventies, but I. Definitely. I mean, it was interesting as I was thinking about her. There were movies that, as we're talking about, I saw in my childhood. And then there were movies like Mrs. Doubtfire that I loved watching with my kids. Yeah. So she spans my entire lifetime. Right. So It's amazing, isn't it? I yeah. didn't. I never saw Gidget. No, um, I didn't either. I was talking with Laura, my wife, and who did watch Gidget when she was a kid, the reruns anyway. I saw a lot of reruns of The Flying Nun when I was a kid. I remember catching those a lot. Mm. Yeah, I've never seen either of those. Yeah, yeah. I, I liked it I, from what I remember. Um, and I do remember thinking, as much as I liked Burt Reynolds, I remember thinking, like, what is she doing with him? Oh, that's so funny. Like, she doesn't seem to be, like, they seem to be from two very different kind of worlds. I think that was true. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, she learned a lot from the relationship, as we do with all of our relationships. Yeah. And I think her book now, In Pieces, I think it's on paperback now. It is. Okay. Yeah, we were given copies um, in hardcover, but it is out in paper now. So Biblio Adventures, are we going to dive into that or did you yes. read more? No, I did uh-huh. not read any more. I finished In Pieces this morning, as a matter of oh, fact. Excellent. Yeah. All right. So Biblio Adventures. Yes. I wanted to just talk about one that I have forgotten to talk about for weeks. So this was not a recent adventure, but Jim and I went to RJ Julia Madison to see Carl Marlantes talk about his new novel, Deep River, which is... For those of you who might remember our recap of Book Expo, Chris got to meet Carl Morlantes at Expo. I didn't know who he was. He is the author of Matterhorn. Yeah, Matterhorn's a great book. I, I met him the first time when Matterhorn was out. He was at the Pritzker Military Library and Museum in Chicago. I lived there at the time, and it was great to meet him because um, I love Matterhorn so much. So I was really surprised to see him at Book Expo. I didn't hear any buzz that he had another book coming out. So when I saw that, I definitely put him on my agenda. Yeah. And he he was really fun. So the reason that I wanted to go back and mention it is the book sounds fantastic. It is not a war book at all. It takes place in the Pacific Northwest. It's a novel. And he was born and raised in the Pacific Northwest. And it's really about the early folks who settled there and got very involved in the lumber industry and how hard they had to work to make a go of it in this small town that he lived in. It's very big. It's a chunkster. I think it'd be a great gift to give. But really why I wanted to mention is the book sounds fantastic, but he's also really fun to see. So get online, check out his website. I'll put it in the show notes. Look for events. I know he's going to be at the Portland Book Festival in early November. So any of you who live out on the West Coast might check that out. Um, And he just is a storyteller. So the event was really fun in that way. And one thing he did talk about is that he worked on this book for a really long time and he submitted it to his editor and it was 750,000 words, I believe. And he didn't hear back and didn't hear back. And I'm thinking, well, of course not. That's a lot of words to read, you know. But then he heard back. He said it was like six words, something to the effect of looks great. Cut at least 150,000 words. (laughs) So he had to go back and he described this process of creating this spreadsheet with all these different characters and figuring out who was related to who. Because when you start cutting you know, it has a ripple effect on the rest of the novel, of course. Absolutely, you know? right. So he said characters ended up being combined and characters went missing and, you know, things like that. So, but so he told us the story of writing the book, but also he's just a storyteller about mm-hmm. different family members because it is based loosely, you know, on his growing up years. That's really cool. That I That's one of the things I'm fascinated about with writing is how a writer can do that. Like, so, I mean, not to toot my own horn, but I've written a couple first drafts of novels. You know, I've done NaNoWriMo, mm-hmm. National Writing, uh, National Novel Writing Month, which is coming up in November as well. And writing that first draft seems to come fairly easily, but then I just can't go back to things mm-hmm. and like start editing yeah. it and shaping it. It freaks me out and I, I just get so paralyzed by it. So to hear about an author who can do that and take characters and combine them I'm I'm fascinated. It just I think it's such a skill and a talent and how much 
you know, discipline and desire you must have to get that story out. I, I'm really yeah. looking forward to talking with Minjin Lee about this very thing. Yeah, I can't even. I mean, when he told me that, I was like, I or not me. He didn't tell me that when he <laughs> talked about that at the event. I just thought I would probably never look at it again. Yeah. And like how many, <laughs> like so many pages and oh, like, how do you keep it all in your mind? Yeah. And I, yeah, yeah, it blows my mind to think yeah. about. Well, it reminds me of the author Ann Packer when she talks about she's in a writing group with a bunch of, you know, very famous writers and she gives them all her, you know, manuscript when it's ready and then they all write it up, write on it. And then she takes one freshly printed one and she takes different color pens for each of the people in her writing group and writes out their notes that they, and I just, I mean, as soon as she started talking, I was like, this is why I'm a reader and not a writer. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know? Or an editor. So, right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. I think uh, the story of um, Max Perkins, the editor mm-hmm. in Thomas Wolfe's book, uh, Look Homeward Angel was his first novel. And the draft that he wrote, like, filled a footlocker. Right. Like, you know, hundreds and hundreds of pages right. of writing. And, and this Max, is before computers. Yeah. Max <laughs> Perkins took it all and put it together and created a novel out right. of it. And I think, like, wow. Yeah. You have to have a certain flexibility of brain space for something like that. I think I'm way too anal and just lazy, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> I just I like the idea of a poem on the page. Right. One page, all the words right there where you can see them all at the same time. Right. I'm going to write a book of haiku. That's what I'm going to do. That has a lot of rules and structure, you know. <laughs> so, but a more recent event that I went to was an event that our buddy Emily, who um, is one of the hosts of book events at RJ Julia's, told me about. She was like, weeks ago, she said, there's this bread event happening at the bookstore. You should come to it. And, you know, I have to admit there was part of me, I used to bake for a living. So I have a few baking books on my shelf, as you might imagine. And I was thinking another bread cookbook, like (laughs) I don't you dare, Emily, you know, (laughs) and but then I get online to read about it. And I realize that it's the gentleman and chef who started, I guess I should say baker who started the bakery bread alone. And for any of you who don't know, which probably a lot of Me, you don't. Me, I'm raising yeah. my hand. <laughs> this was a bakery that was located in Upper Boyceville, New York, which just so happens to be where Aunt Ellen lived. Oh, wow. When I was a kid growing up, they had a home up there, and I would spend summers with her. And it was in Boyceville, literally on the same road. You had to go down this big hill, and you'd get to this bakery. And it was like... That is so amazing. What a great coincidence. So when I saw that it was him, I could not believe it. Of course I had to go. And I do have a story to tell about Brett alone that I did not tell him because it's completely inappropriate to tell. (laughs) But, you know, so I started to go to Brett alone when I was a teenager. And then eventually I went to Brett alone with a young child of my own, Rachel, my firstborn. And at the time she was walking and so we had we had walked all the way down this big hill and the award at the end was always to go into this place. And he was making these incredible European hard crust loaves of bread that you just couldn't find, you know, at that point. And Rachel was potty training at the time. <laughs> and I had the luxury of staying home with my kids. I did daycare and had other children as well as my own. 
And Jacob was a baby at this point, but Rachel was a full-fledged toddler. And the way that I potty trained my kids was I had this little porta potty, literally like a little kid's one that I would just take everywhere with me in my car. So if we were at the park and someone needed to go, the porta potty whipped out. I didn't care if we were in public. And I just felt really strongly that that's how you potty train kids. Mm -hmm. And the other thing you learn when you're potty training is that a lot of places won't let you use their bathrooms, which I always found appalling. So it was a risk, you know, to go out with these once your kids weren't wearing diapers and were new potty trainers. I'm making all these reasons why I felt like it was appropriate that my kids could drop their drawers in public. But anyway, <laughs> so we get to Brett alone. We walked. I don't have the porta potty with me because we walked. We leave the restaurant and is about we're about to start approaching the hill to walk home. Rachel announces she has to go to the bathroom. So I'm like, fine. Drops her drawers. Proceeds to go to the bathroom. I didn't realize what kind of the bathroom she had to go. <laughs> I thought she just had to tinkle, as they say, but that's not what she did. Wow. <laughs> so then I turn my head because, as you know, when you have a toddler and a newbornish, you're not really of this world at that point. <laughs> yeah. Like I was very tired and groggy. Pull Rachel's pants up, you know, pulling a tissue out of my pocket that was half used, wipe her bum turn my head to realize that we are literally outside of like the main window of bread alone with tables where people are having their morning pastries so that was not a story I told Daniel Leader, but I thought I would tell you listeners that story so that's my last memory of ever being a bread alone <laughs> but he's a renowned renowned baker in the field of bread baking because he started off very young took a risk opened up this bakery in upper Boyceville which is you know considered to be a suburb of New York uh, you know New York City in a way like where people escape the city on the weekends and he started to make this incredible bread and he would drive into the city and take it to farmers markets on Saturday morning and he was telling stories that at that time they required people who made the items to bring the items. So you couldn't bake all night and then send one of your employees. You had to physically take your wares to New York City and stand at the farmer's market all day. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So he said in the early days of his career, it was just crazy making, you know, all the time. But then he got a very great review from Craig Claiborne, who was one of the food critics at the time in New York Times in I don't know what year it was in July 9th 1986 I wrote it down saying that his bread that bread alone's bread was fantastic he they were making this wheat bread with walnuts and raisins at the time I vividly remember eating that with my aunt <laughs> <laughs> and the career of, of Daniel Leader was made with that announcement bread alone's bread sold like hotcakes after that and this is not his first book he has a book called bread alone I'm talking forever. I'm sorry. I loved I love this book. I actually did buy a copy. And what he said and what is true at this event, it's not just another bread baking book. There are some recipes in here. They're very unusual bread recipes, but it's really an ode to baking bread and to the different bakers out in the world. He went and traveled around all over Europe and the world, literally, to find various bread bakers. And the photographer and the photography in this book are 
phenomenal. And the photographer happened to be at the event in Madison. Oh, that's really neat. Yeah. He lives in Munich or Berlin. I'm sorry. He lives in Berlin. And I, I'm sure I'm going to mispronounce his name. It's Jorg Lehman, I think. And the photography in this book is just complete eye candy. Wow. So, so it'd be a fantastic gift. And also just a gift for yourself if you are a baker, because it's fun to read. Mm -hmm. And I am hoping to make some of the recipes. Um, but it is high, kind of highbrow. Not I shouldn't say it that way. They're not too fancy, but you need to have a scale to be able to measure. You know, it's not like half cup of this. It's grams and, okay. you know, yeah. things like that. Um, so again, it's called Living Bread. I don't know if I said that by Daniel Leader who is the founder of Bread Alone Bakery, which has several locations now, but the original is in Upper Boyceville, New York. Very cool. Beautiful book. Yeah, it's really pretty. And thank you to Aunt Ellen, who lived there at the time. She doesn't anymore, but she had a home there, and we got to go eat a lot of bread. It's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Love good bread. Yes, indeed. Mm. I have many more adventures. Did you have any? You, or do we want to talk about our joint one? Should I talk about one other one I went on first? Or do you have some? I just want to give a shout out to a movie that I oh, watched called The Late Show. Oh, yeah. With Emma Thompson. Mm -hmm. It was really good. I really enjoyed it. And so she plays this late night host who's been very popular for a very long time. And of course, times are changing. Um, they think she's a little bit too highbrow. And the owner or the vp of the network comes in to tell her she's going to be replaced and makes a comment about her last guest being doris kearns goodwin the oh, writer yeah and emma thompson's character is like she's a national treasure you know <laughs> <laughs> so i just thought that was a nice shout out yeah, for, for her so but other than that i mean other than my book club and our joint jaunt i think you should mention your other okay and then we can I jump will. into our fabulous joint jaunt well, ironically, I now know the name of that Leon Moriarty book because it's Big Little Lies because I tried to watch Big Little Lies and I have okay. it written down here, Excellent. which is the HBO series. I got it. I, I had a little dental situation last week that where I had to convalesce. So I had gotten it out of the library as a treat because I don't have HBO and the first season's available on DVD now. And I have to say it's six parts six mm -hmm. episodes and I watched the first two and didn't do anything for me yeah I heard somebody say and I haven't tried the book I haven't tried the the series at all but I did hear somebody say that the book is much better yeah I enjoyed the book very much okay. oh I, you read the book yeah okay. and I wanted to really like the series mm -hmm. and that's why it was like oh I'm gonna be sitting on the couch this will be my treat and it didn't end up being that way okay so too bad but, yeah that's okay that's okay but I did have a great jaunt to New York City a couple weeks ago. Um, Jim and I went into town and visited with Aunt Ellen and her beau. And we had tickets to go see a play. And we walked. It was a beautiful fall day. So we walked from her place on the Lower East Side through to Chelsea. And we walked through Greenwich Village. And we saw the Jeff Jefferson Market Library which is beautiful. We have to go in and go see it together. There's a fantastic garden on the outside where people, you know, it was fenced in around the library. People were in there sitting on benches and reading. And the library itself is just spectacularly gorgeous. It used to be a court, I think, I read online. Okay. Um, and it is, for any of you who are fans of the podcast, 
the librarian is in, <laughs> sponsored by the New York Public Library. Frank Colarius is one of the hosts of that podcast. And this is the library that he works at that he talks about all the time on the podcast. So we got to walk past it. Sadly, we were we were on, you know, a timeline to get to our place. So we didn't really get to go through it. I would have liked mm-hmm. to have done that. But we went to see the play Sunday by Jack Thorne, written by Jack Thorne. He recently won a Tony for writing the script for Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, the J.K. Rowling book. Um, And the the premise of it is these four friends who graduated from high school, two of them have been working in the publishing industry. So the set is this huge stack of books. (laughs) You weren't allowed to take pictures, but I was crazily through the whole play trying to figure out and read all the titles in the stack. Um, and the one of the conceits of the play is the group has is in a book club. So they're meeting, drinking tons of vodka and talking about the Ann Tyler book, Dinner at the Homesick Restaurant. <laughs> it had a lot of 20-something angst, the play. This was very off-off Broadway. I don't know if it'll ever have its day on Broadway. The group of four of us had very mixed reviews about how they, they felt about it. I felt like since I have kids that are in their 20s, it was kind of interesting to ponder for an hour and a half what their angst riddled lives might look like, mm-hmm. you know, what they don't perhaps share with their mother. So um, I found it enjoyable. I thought it was a lot of food for thought. Um, again, that was called Sunday by Jack Thorne. And that's Thorne with an E. Well, we went on a super fantastic joint jaunt together biblio adventure we did yeah this weekend we attended um hashtag book club brunch their annual event this is the eighth year that they've done this event and it's a just a fantastic day of books it started at 10 a.m it ended at three mm-hmm. and what it was was it was uh panels they had a fiction panel a non-fiction panel and then a conversation with two different authors, the headliner being Sally Field, talking um, about her memoir and pieces that um, Emily and I talked about earlier. And she was in conversation with her editor. Right. Millicent Bennett. Bennett. Yeah. From Grand Central Publishing. And there was also another panel with the author Susanna Cahalan. Callahan? I thought it was Callahan, but it's Callahan, who's the author of Brain on Fire. And she was in conversation with Emma Straub, who's an author and the owner of Books Are Magic in Brooklyn. So should we quickly talk about who was on each panel? Yeah, let's give everybody a rundown because they're really great. And we really just, I mean, it was so well organized. Such a just a fun, friendly group of people. Yeah, from from the publisher and all the authors, it's so enjoyable. And what? How many people did they say attended? You know, I've been asked this. Yeah, it was hundreds. I'm really terrible at telling how many people are in an auditorium, but it was. I would say it was a few hundred. Yeah, that I mean, somebody said four hundred. I have okay, and that was just a guess from somebody who yeah. doesn't know either. But I'm I'm not the best either at gauging. But it was in a large auditorium at the John Jay. College of um, Criminal Justice. Very comfortable in surroundings. The narrative nonfiction panel was moderated by Bill Goldstein, 
who's the author of The World Broken Into, Virginia Woolf, T.S. Eliot, E.M. Forrester, D.H. Lawrence, and The Year That Changed Literature. And he had panelists Ryan Lee Dosti, who wrote the book Formation, A Woman's Memoir of Stepping Out of Line, Leslie Jameson, the author of Make It Scream, Make It Burn, and Michael Denzel Smith, the author of Invisible Man, Got the Whole World Watching, A Young Black Man's Education. That was the nonfiction panel. Yeah, and that was really interesting because one of the things that the book, the, all of the books kind of had, or one of the things that they had in common was this whole issue of kind of cyclical physical violence mm-hmm. against women, against African Americans, you know, uh, alcoholism, eating disorders, and that that type of violence uh, yeah. on the human body and psyche. So it was a really intense conversation. It was. And um, I thought Bill Goldstein did a good job of asking all the panelists various questions. Sometimes it can be hard when there's that many people on a stage. You feel like everyone doesn't get the chance to speak about their books and let us know what they were about. But I thought it was really well done. Really? Yes, it was. And heavy material, but handled with with ease, I think, which can be hard to do. Mm -hmm. And it made me want to read each of their books, I have to say. Yes. (laughs) The fiction panel was moderated by Karen Kostelnik, and the authors were Kira Jane Buxton, the author of The Hollow Kingdom, Lenny Zumas, who wrote Red Clocks, and Alex E. Harrow, who wrote The Ten Thousand Doors of January. Again, all books I want to read yes. from the conversations that were had. Yeah, and this was a fun panel in that I felt like the panelists really interacted with each other a lot. They did. Which was fun. Yeah, because they one of the commonalities between all of their books was that they're all in their own ways quest stories. Right. So they, they talked a lot about that and about, I think the, the moderator's first question was about world building. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they talked about that. They talked about their backgrounds as readers and how they came to their stories. And it was really cool because you could see these women from little girls and what they were interested in and what they read and how it's since shape now what they're writing yeah and they talked about how what they've read kind of mysteriously becomes parts of what they they're writing as well which i thought was fun yeah because alex talks because this is her first novel it's debut fiction it's a fantasy and she said she didn't realize the extent of the literary literary influences on her until she's been interviewed by all of these people and she's like oh my gosh yeah there's that book coming in and there's that tv series coming in and you know it's stuff that's so uh, part of her dna is i think the terminology she used coming out in in what she's creating now which is so cool right right and for those of you who don't know also hollow kingdom is the one people are talking a lot about because it's written from the perspective of a black crow yeah named named shit turd or st for short ST for short yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's really fascinating and then the conversation um that emma straub had i just i had some notes here about things yeah so that was yeah susanna uh, callahan right it says kahalan here c-a-h-a-l-a-n okay Yeah. yeah well her book looks at this one study that was done about like pseudo patients and how people get diagnosed so simply and severely and life alteringly. 
so that sounds like a fascinating book and not right. one that I would normally pick up my by myself, but this panel or their conversation, I should say, really m- made me interested in this whole issue of uh, the DSM, mm-hmm. the diagnostic, what is it called? It's diagnostic I want to statistical say manual. manual. I know it's diagnostic and manual. I'm not sure what the S stands yeah, for. Yeah, DSM. So that's that big book that has all of the diagnoses in it, like that's basically become a checklist for people. Right. And just how that was just kind of thrown together by some people who wanted to have standards uh, across the board for diagnosing patients, which is probably a good thing so that there is some commonality. But since insurance got involved, it's become such a checklist thing where people are misdiagnosed or not diagnosed. And it's very problematic Right. Or as Susanna said, and we're actually talking about her book, The Great Pretender, I should say. Sorry. Yeah, I jumped around. No, that's okay. No, I uh, Brain on Fire was that her book that she wrote based on an experience she had where she was misdiagnosed with a mental illness when she actually had encephalitis in her brain. Yeah. And once she was treated for encephalitis, she was 100% cured. Yeah. Instead of being diagnosed with a mental illness that was potentially incurable right exactly you know know, and there's so much of that too i know with the elderly Mm -hmm. you know sometimes they get diagnosed as having dementia when really they have a uti a Mm -hmm. a urinary tract infection and so that's now one of the first things that people check for is that Mm -hmm. they have a uti and quite often you clear that up and their brain functions just clearly again yep absolutely so the great pretender was a book she wasn't expecting to write but it was her response to learning that so many people are misdiagnosed. My understanding, and maybe this wasn't a correct understanding, is she was specifically uh, focusing on in the mental health field. Is that true? Or do you think it was misdiagnosis in all fields? Oh, no, I think it was in the mental health. Okay, I'm yeah. pretty sure. Okay, that's yeah. what I thought. Yeah. So, um, and you know, a lot of it was just because as she was going out to tour brain on fire, people were coming up with their various stories of how they had been misdiagnosed over the years. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the fascinating comments during their conversation was that medicine and illness are stories in and of themselves. Yes. That deserve to be told. Yes. And I I really uh, like that. that. I had no idea that there was this movement too against the DSM Mm -hmm. um, to, to, well, just a movement against it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I think so much of diagnostic now is um, through the DSM for the insurance company, and not nece- it's it's trying to fit people into boxes, right? Instead of really listening to their stories and figuring out what is wrong with them. Mm-hmm. I always like to say, you know, when I have a friend or myself going through some sort of a medical situation, that there's a reason they call it the practice of medicine. Right. You know, it's, they have to, you know, figure out what's wrong with people. We're complex. Yeah. (laughs) So we don't, we don't necessarily fit into little boxes of diagnoses. And then Sally Field and her um, editor, Millicent Bennett, that was a really lovely way to go out. I mean, it was, you know, the last, she was the last, as as Chris said, the feature of the day. Yeah. And just a little bit, uh, you know, Sally Fields was, uh, Field, I should say Sally Field, um, just adorable and so friendly and personable. And uh, Millicent would ask a question and Sally would just take off. Right. You know? (laughs) And and then finally, you know, Millicent was like, "Well, I, you know, we're we're out of time." And Sally's like, "What? 
Yeah. You only asked me like two or three questions. She's like, oh, did I talk too much? I mean, she was just so adorable. But I mean, her answers were just great. And her storytelling within her answers was wonderful because she's been writing all along. Mm-hmm. She said she's been taking writing classes. And, and over the years, over her the years of her careers, over the decades, I should probably say, people had asked her to write a memoir. And she always said no. No, I, you know, I am not interested. And if she ever did write one, she would write one herself. Right. They always, right. They always said, oh, we've got the perfect person to write write your, your celebrity memoir. She's like, no, no. But what happened was her, her mom passed away. And before her mom died, they had both done a lot of work together. And so Sally thought, you know, her, when her mom died, this is the way things would go. And that, you know, she would be quote, okay. And she thought she had it figured out, but then after her mom passed away, she felt so off about things in a way that really kind of unbalanced her and destabilized her. So she started writing about that, right? And then yeah. eventually what she started writing, she realized was a story that she could share and wanted to share. Right. So she approached a publisher this time. Right. Yeah. And then went through the process of, you know, writing for quite a number of years. Yeah, I think was, she said seven years. Yeah. Which seems, you know, that seems to be a number that resonates. Have you noticed that? A mm-hmm. lot of authors say it took them seven years. Yeah. Which is yet another reason in my mind not to write. <laughs> <laughs> well, seven years or 10,000 hours or, you yeah. know, I mean, yeah. there are these numbers that keep coming right. back up. Because another writer said they, at the uh, Hachette, brunch said that they were working on theirs for seven years as well yeah yeah it seems a common amount of time that Mm -hmm. it takes people to write a book yeah I I as I said also reading the book it really surprised me to to how touched I was by her sharing of the journey she had with her mother and her family yeah absolutely and we were lucky enough to have a few minutes to talk with Sally Field at the very end of everything at the end of the day, she was autographing books for people, and um, we connected with Karen Torres, who is the MC of the event. Who did a great job. Oh, my God. She was hysterical. She's the vice president of uh, field sales and account marketing for Hachette Book Group. And so we chatted with her. We were just going to say thank you so much for this great event. It was our first time attending. We really enjoyed it. And she's the one who made the connection for us with Sally Field and uh, Millicent to to be able to meet both of them and take a picture. And so talking with Sally Field about her writing process was interesting because um, she was, Emily, you made the comment of saying like, oh my God, the grammar, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't know about dealing with the grammar because Sally said something about, you know, being a new writer, uh, her first book. And Millicent was like, oh, that's what editors are for. Editors take care of that kind of stuff. And Sally said, oh, my gosh, it was fascinating because I found myself when I was being edited that I would say the same word in multiple sentences in a row. And it's just like, oh, my gosh, I didn't even realize I was doing that. But through her editing process in this first book, she said now when she reads writing, she can see it in other writers' writing. She's like, right. even Arthur Miller. She'll right. be like, oh, my God, he keeps repeating that same word. <laughs> and, you know, as Millicent said, like, sometimes in a book, like if you're describing the desert and the desert's often yellow, you have to come up with all these different words for yellow so you're not saying the same thing. Right. So it was really cool to have that little micro-conversation about writing yeah. with somebody who was 
been studying the craft for a long time and just had her first book out. Yeah. And then also, you know, the copy editor is the one that was looking at the grammar. So Sally said she'd get this book back with all of these post-its, you know, in it and kind of have a moment of panic. And she's like, you know, I don't care if it's a dangling participle, you know, (laughs) and Millicent would, you know, would vouch for Sally to the copy editor, you know, that, well, this is Sally's voice. It's okay if it's a dangling participle. Right, exactly. Yeah. (laughs) So it was interesting to see their relationship build as, you know, the book went closer and closer to being finished. Yeah. And I think that was a great thing. And I think, you know, what you hit on with how well the not uh, the memoir flowed like mm-hmm. how well it was written like it was consistently in her voice yeah you know you can tell there wasn't two writers involved or yeah. you know somebody telling somebody else's story it seemed very tight in that yeah. way yeah and it was yeah it was definitely her voice so that was very fun so it was a great day we got to catch up with many of our booktopia friends which was really fun and thank you to linda johnson who has told us about this event for a few years now. And we finally, we've had conflicts in the prior years and we finally were able to go. And she arranged a lovely dinner for um, a group of Booktopians and Booktopia author alum, Will Schwabe, which was really fun. Yeah, it was great. We had a nice dinner afterwards. Yeah, yeah, it was really lovely. So thank you, Linda, for that. And Linda is our Goodreads librarian, if her name sounds familiar. She is indeed. She's also, I should say our copy editor because she's the one that will email me when I make errors in the show notes, which I'm very thrilled to have someone watching out for my grammar and particularly my mistakes when I put titles of books in because we want people to be able to find them. Absolutely. It's always good to have more eyes on things. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So upcoming adventures, Chris. Well, we have one coming up this Friday. Mm-hmm. We will be going to see Gretchen Rubin and her sister who do the podcast, the Happier Podcast. Right. And her sister has a name. Elizabeth Craft. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> There's a reason. There's two of us here. And they've kind of taken their show on the road. They're going around the country to various different venues. And we got really lucky to get these tickets because it sold out very quickly. Yeah. So um we'll be yeah we'll be going to providence on friday for that i'm really excited yeah, looking for the, it's an eight o'clock event yeah i don't think i've gone to an event that starts at eight o'clock in a long time i know is I'm, that what happens when you become middle-aged yes <laughs> i know i'm usually kind of like i think i'll brush my teeth now at eight o'clock <laughs> like can i get my jammies on yet yeah that's true i might have to take a nap or have a late coffee or both right we'll have yeah. to get coffee on the way back yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and there's three of us going so we could drive in ships <laughs> It's an hour and a half away. Listen to us. We might have to pull over to rest area and take a nap. (laughs) And then I'm going to be going next week to um, Charleston to meet up with some of my Booktopia buds and for the Charleston to Charleston Literary Festival there. So I'll be reporting back. Yeah, I can't wait to hear about that. Yeah, I'm really excited. And do you have any upcoming reads? You know what? I do. I have one that I kind of started reading a little bit. It's an ARC that I received. Then I read the preface already. This looks really good. Um, It's coming out, I believe, November 4th or 5th. So just around the corner. It's called Alta, California. From San Diego to San Francisco, a journey on foot to rediscover the Golden State. It's written by Nick Neely. And this is... uh, following the footsteps of one of the 
early Spanish um, Christian missions in California that established a lot of the town names that are still being used in California, like Los Angeles. So this writer, Nick, he is a nature writer and a poet, and he's from California. And he thought it would be really cool to try and follow in this in the footsteps of that initial journey because the journals were kept by the men on that mission. And he, and just in the preface that I read, you know, he's like, there's one area that goes through private land and he tried to get permission to go through this. It's a huge ranch where wealthy people live there. And they're like, no. So he does it at night. Mm. He follows this railroad track at night. Um, so I think it's going to be a really interesting read because it combines history, nature writing, and then Calif- you know, current California yeah. landscape and stuff. I love California so much. Um, so I'm really looking forward to reading that. Excellent. It's not a book that would have crossed my path normally, but uh, Mike Branch, who we had an interview with a couple episodes ago, told me about this one. So I'm looking That's forward good. to it. I can't wait to hear about it. I have two on my list, The Shape of Night by Tess Gerritsen. I'm looking for something that's not going to destroy me like American Dirt did. And this is one that you and John Valeri had a conversation with on Twitter about. Tess Gerritsen is um, pretty prolific. She's got the Rizzoli and Isles, I think, series. And this is a standalone. And I read another one of her books and they're just pure escapism. And this one takes place in Maine and involves a cookbook author. And I think the two of you were tweeting about how much I'd like it. So yeah. Hey, yeah, right up your alley. Yeah, I'm going to give it a try. And then the other one I have, I got from NetGalley. Thank you. And it's called All the Fucking Mistakes, A Guide to Sex, Love and Life. Nice. And it's a nonfiction by Gigi Engel. And it's being touted as a sex handbook for the millennial feminist. All right. I'm not a millennial feminist, but I have a millennial feminist daughter. So I thought I'd read it to, to learn more. Nice. I started reading it. It's hilarious. She's pretty well known for essays that she has out in the world already. That um, So I'm curious to see what the book's about. More to come. All right. I look forward to that. Yeah. Well, all right, everybody. Here we are at the end of another episode. Yes. Happy reading. Thanks for listening to The Book Cougars with Chris Wallach and Emily Fine. To keep the bookish conversation going online, join our Goodreads group or connect with us on social media. If you'd like to contribute to our hunt for a good read, you can donate on Patreon. And if you have a minute to review us on whatever app you use to listen to us, we appreciate it. It can help other listeners find us. Thanks, everybody.